Hey, good morning. How's everyone doing? Good. <laughs> good. Great. It's going to be good. It's going to be a good morning. Hey, welcome to church. I'm so glad you're here. My name is Matthew. I'm the parish pastor here at Trinity and Decatur on the east side. Uh, we're going to be in the book of Luke. So if you have a Bible and you want to turn, follow along, we're in Luke 16. Luke 16. Just to, uh, again, to say, as Brad said, I'm, we're really excited about this class. I, I think it's been a while since we did something like this that was just like, how do you, like a very basic level, but I, so many of the questions I get are around, like, I don't know what to do with this. I mean, I read, there's weird stuff in here. Every week there's weird stuff that we read. How do I understand this and interpret it? And, and so very excited that Ashley's going to be uh, teaching this class, and I hope that it, you can find the time to, to head over there. Um, I think it'd be well worth your time. So Luke 16, I'm going to read the first 13 verses of this, and then we'll pray, and then we'll dig in together. And then Jesus said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was squandering his property. And so he summoned him and said to him, what is this that I hear? Um, Because, what is this that I hear about you? Sorry. Sorry. Give me an accounting of your management, because you cannot be my manager any longer. And then the manager said to himself, what will I do? Now that my master is taking the position away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do. And so uh, when I am dismissed as manager, people may welcome me into their homes. And so summoning this man, uh, this master's debtors one by one, he asked the first, how much do you owe my master? And he answered, a hundred jugs of olive oil. And he said to him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 50. And then he asked another and said, How much do you owe? And he replied, A hundred containers of wheat. And he said, Take your bill and make it 80. And his master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of dishonest wealth, so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into the eternal homes." Whoever is faithful in very little is faithful also in much. And whoever is dishonest in very little is dishonest also in much. If then you have been not faithful with the dishonest wealth, who will entrust you with the true riches? And if you have not been faithful with what belongs to another, who will give you what is your own? No slave can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one or love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God. And wealth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray and ask God to help us understand this very strange story. Lord, we thank you that you speak in ways that are um, at times provocative and troubling. And we thank you, Lord, because it, um, it, it forces us, Lord, to think forces us to engage directly. And so we pray that we wouldn't check out. We pray that we would lean in, that when a weird or a hard thing comes out of your mouth, Lord, that we would be people who draw closer to you, ask questions, open our hands and our hearts. And so we do that today as your people. We pray, Father, that you would speak through the Spirit into our hearts and lead us in the way of your Son. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. 
What a weird story, right? That's very weird. Uh, it's, we've been spending the month of September looking at what we're calling the treasure of the church. It's a part of a much larger six-month-long look at what the church is, what it practices, what it believes, uh, what it embodies. And right now we're talking for the month of September about what is it that the church values? What's, at the, what's, at, what's its currency? What is its economy that it lives by? And so this week we're going to look very specifically at like how does the church therefore understand possessions and wealth, uh, the things that we own, the things that are in our pockets. Uh, one of the larger themes in Luke's gospel, one of the meta themes in Luke, is the idea of uh, how a person living in God's kingdom, a person who is an apprenticeship to Jesus, chooses to, to view and use and see the, the things that they have, their possession. In fact, Luke talks about this, or Jesus talks about this in Luke uh, 6, 10, 12, 14, 16, 18, and 21. He throws it off at the end and goes to an odd number. But the rest of the time, he's always talking, whether briefly or at length, about what it is that a Christian, a person who's following Jesus, should do with money. And boy, I mean, if this is your first time at church, I'm sorry. Like, what a cliche, right? I mean, you came to church, you're finally here, maybe it's been years, and here I am talking about money. Um, we don't do this very much here at Trinity. We talk with our members about money. We talk about giving with our members at our members' meetings. Uh, we intentionally try to create a very hospitable space in here. And yet, as people who also follow electionary and who are following Jesus, we believe that he today is reminding us that this very powerful and important thing in our life, uh, he wants to put his hands on that too. As we said a couple weeks ago, following Jesus is going to mean at some point him putting his finger on every aspect of my life and saying, follow me in this as well. So what we're going to do is I'm first of all just going to explain this parable. I want to do that briefly so that we can get to the heart of this teaching, which is Jesus's commentary at the end of it. So the first thing I'll say as we work our way through the text is this. Jesus tells a story about a steward it's important, I think, to note this is a little bit of like Bible, like how to do the, how to, how to do the Bible. Uh, when you read a, a parable, you can't always assume that the parable is meant to be read analogously. Sometimes it is. Last week, we looked at a story about a shepherd and 99 or 100 sheep, and it's very clear, like God's the shepherd, I'm the sheep, he found me, he's happy. You're like, that's a very cut and dry, A equals one, B equals two parable. But sometimes, a lot of times, you come to teachings out of Jesus' mouth, and they can't be understood that clearly. He's actually focusing on a specific act that one of the actors does, or he's, he's trying to get at a larger theme. And that's what we're looking at here today. Jesus intentionally, I think intentionally and provocatively, taught in ways that would put people kind of off, you know, off center a little bit. As N.T. Wright loves to say, Jesus would speak in riddles. And I think the reason he did this is because it's super fun to solve riddles. When, you, when you're listening to something and trying to figure it out, it means more on the other side, which is why Jesus is always saying at the end of his teachings, for everyone who has ears to hear, let him hear. Which is not his way of saying, if you happen to be spiritually alert enough to catch on to what I'm saying, good for you. He's saying, do you have ears on the side of your head? And everyone goes, yes. He's like, use them. Use your brain and your ears to listen to what I'm saying. If you have ears, lean in and ask questions. So we're going to do that with the story today. So he tells this story. It's about a steward. It's about, as the NRSV says, a manager who's been entrusted with someone else's wealth. That person is supposed to spend the money, to receive the money, to invest the money in ways that are in keeping with the master's intentions, desires, and so on. He's there to steward what is not 
his. And the word gets back to his manager that he has not been doing a good job at this. You know, lots of long business lunches at very expensive restaurants and things like that. And so the manager calls him into his office and says, I've heard what you're doing. You're done. And this guy says, oh, no, what am I going to do? Because the subtext in this is that part of his responsibilities has been collecting debts. So he's essentially been, among other things, he's been in collections. And if you've ever had to work in collections, and I've had friends who have, it's a terrible job. Nobody wants the job. No little kids are laying in bed at night right now dreaming of being in collections one day because everyone hates you. You're the worst person. You're always saying, you owe me this and I want it right now. And this has been his job. So he has nothing but enemies in the town. He has nothing but enemies in the village. And he recognizes that he has got a narrow little window to act to try to make friends fast so that when he's done, he doesn't have to do manual labor, which he says, I'm too weak to do. And maybe, maybe that's just a very sad little self-admission. So he says, I got to figure out what to do. And he quickly goes and he cuts down what people owe him by half, by 20%. Now, this appears on the surface to be a dishonest thing to do. This appears to be, I mean, sort of like sticking it to the manager one last time. It appears to be wrong what he's doing. And that's because it is wrong what he's doing. He's doing a dishonest thing. He's called dishonest for doing this thing. But, and here's the curveball, the, the master commends the steward, says, good job, way to go. Now, what he commends him for is really important. He doesn't say, I'm so proud of you for bargaining away half of my accounts receivable. He doesn't say that. He says, what I'm, what I'm commending you for is that you acted shrewdly in a moment. You took advantage of an opportunity to ensure that you would have a future on the other side of this. You stewarded someone else's property to make sure that there was going to be something for you on the other side of today's termination. And Jesus, rather than, you know, sort of then going, boy, isn't the world messed up? Thank goodness we're not like that. He doubles down on it and he says, and that's what's wrong with the church is that people in this world know how to be more shrewd with other people's money than children of God know how to be with the things that have been given to them. That is a very strange story. Um, But what is at the heart of it is Jesus is trying to make a comparison. He is making a comparison between how people understand their role and responsibility with wealth in this world, in this culture, uh, without sort of a lens, a kingdom of God lens, versus how we could lean into it if we had eyes to see it uh, in light of the kingdom of God, which leads us to the real heart of this. The second point, all of our lives are stewardship. Jesus uses a steward because he wants us to show, he wants us to see that everything that you and I have is something that we are uh, managing. It belongs to someone else, that everything we have is stewardship our entire life. Now, this was not a strange teaching for the the Jewish audience. They would have expected this. In fact, the Bible begins in Genesis 1 with God entrusting property to his people. The very first thing he says to his people is, I want you to take care of the earth and make it fruitful and tend to it and have dominion over it, which doesn't mean to exploit it. It means to have dominion over it that is in keeping with the way that I have dominion over you. And how does God's dominion over us work? It's gracious, it's fruit-bearing, it's hopeful, it's redemptive. So he's like, I want you to treat the things around you the same way that I treat you. And in that way, be my cooperative friends, be my co-creators, be my co-laborers. 
The church could probably do really well to remember that the first words spoken to people in the Bible are, hey, take care of my planet. But anyway, so this is how the Bible begins. And so if you were a Jew, you understood clearly that all of life was actually stewardship. You were given someone else's property to take care of. And the Jewish people had liturgies worked into their their daily practices. They were just baked into their family habits where they would pray certain things. So before every meal, they would say, blessed are you, O Lord, our God, king of the universe, for you caused the bread to grow. They just saw every single thing. So as you make, you know, your peanut butter sandwich, this white bread somehow made in a factory, God, you, you make bread to grow. You cause the things to sprout up from the earth. Everything that we have comes from your hand. In fact, uh, David says in First uh, Chronicles 29, he's dedicating all the materials that have been gathered for the temple. And he's not going to get to build the temple, but he's going to get to pass it on to his son. And he's looking at all this stuff, and they got a lot of stuff. And he says in verses 11 and 12, he says, all wealth, all power come from you. All honor and glory is yours. And then he says in verse 14, and who am I and who are my people that we can give you anything for we can only give to you what you have already first given to us to understand that all of my life is just returning back to the person who already gave to me in the first place. And Jesus is trying to work this into our minds today. And we have a problem with that as Americans. I mean, we're very individualistic. We immediately go, well, yes, for sure. I can see that maybe. But I mean, I worked for what I have. I worked hard to get where I am. I put in the hours. I went to the hard schools. I wrote the long essays. I got put in the whatever. I've, I've, I've spent long hours getting to where I am today. And the Jewish mindset would just go, yes, yes, that is true. You did, you did work very hard with that body that you have that works for you. You did work very hard with that life that's in your body that you didn't earn or buy. Uh, you, you did work very hard with the skills and the circumstances and the talents that were already given to you. As Tim Keller uh, says, I think this is great. He's like, yeah, we've, we've all worked very hard, but if you'd been born on a mountainside in Tibet in the 13th century, you would have worked harder and had less to show for it. And just to recognize that there is intrinsic in every single thing I have a gift, that the place that I come from, the circumstances that I was born into, the time and the place, everything, my skill set, my, my mental acuity, all of it comes outside of me. I can hone it for sure. And we're meant to. That's also part of the stewardship. But everything that I have has come because of a gift that was first given to me. Or as C.S. Lewis says it in Mere Christianity, every faculty you have, your power of thinking or of moving your limbs from moment to moment is given to you by God. If you devoted every moment of your whole life exclusively to his service, you could not give him anything that was not, in a sense, his own already. And it is after this discovery that real life begins. The man is now awake. Jesus is inviting us to understand that every single thing we possess, every skill, every dollar, every item, comes because it was gifted to us. And therefore, we live as stewards. This isn't mine. I'm entrusted with this to take care of it. Now, that's hard for us. We have a hard time with that, which is the third point. Um, that is because money has tremendous power over our lives. It has tremendous power over us. We have a hard time disconnecting ourselves from it in such a way that we can see it as something that's given to us because there's tremendous power that comes from money. Um, in 1971, a, a group of sociologists released a report uh, or a study, 
And in it, they coined this term for the first time, which has now been used quite a bit. It's called the hedonic treadmill. So hedonism is like this, uh, the pursuit of comfort, the pursuit of pleasure. And they called it the hedonic treadmill because it's this idea that we think we're moving towards greater comfort. We think we're moving towards greater pleasure. But what's actually happening is that we're just stuck in the same relative place of comfort and happiness, no matter how much we have, no matter how far we run. Uh, it is essentially the, the observed tendency, this is fascinating, the observed tendency of humans to quickly return to a relatively stable level of happiness regardless of major positive or negative events or life changes. And it's just this idea that like you think, we think that if we just get a little bit, we just get on the other side of this, we just finish this part of our life and enter this part, we get more money or whatever. We think we're on the cusp always of a happier life. And it's like actually the truth is that your level of happiness is relatively stable no matter what is going on around you. One study showed that from 1957 to 1990, so it's a little dated now, but from 1957 to 1990, the per capita income in America doubled in real dollars, like accounting for inflation and all that. So, the per, so we had twice as much money in our pockets in 1990 as we did 33 years earlier in 1957. And do you know that the average happiness you know, of, the, of an average American had not moved at all? It was still one-third of Americans would say they lived a relatively happy life, even though we have twice as much money. In fact, it's also been shown in studies that there is a huge difference in the happiness a person experiences and the, and the, the, the release of pressure and anxiety between a person who makes $5,000 a year and a person who makes $50,000 a year. And that's pretty obvious, right? You make $5,000 a year, you're far below the poverty line, you're barely surviving, uh, if at all. So the difference between making five and 50, there's a huge measurable difference in a person's level of anxiety and fear and stress and all that. But do you know the difference between a person who makes $50,000 a year and $50 million a year? There is no measurable difference in peace of mind, freedom from anxiety, lower depression, nothing. It, it doesn't move the needle at all, which is crazy because I'm looking at a room full of people that believed if they made $100,000 more next year, they'd be happier people, right? I mean, if you could just make $100,000 more next year, you would feel better. But some people are like, $100,000, I would be incredible. And yet it's statistically proven you would not be any happier. You wouldn't feel any better about your life. And yet this is the tremendous power that money has over us. And Jesus talks about money all the time. He talks about it in ways that are not um, morally neutral, which is funny because I always kind of thought of money as a morally neutral thing. And I think, I think talking about money as morally neutral is a way of not dealing with the actual dangers of money. As long as it can be like, oh, money is a good thing. It just sometimes is misused. But Jesus, he talks about money a lot. In fact, for every word he has about sex, he has 10 words about money. And you know what he never says at any time? Blessed are the ones who have lots of money. They have an easy life. He doesn't talk about the, the values of money. He never extols it as something that's worth pursuing. He says, don't make your life about pursuing this. He has a surprisingly cynical perception on what wealth is going to do to a person's life, how hard it's going to make it for them to follow Jesus, how hard it's going to make it for them to enter the kingdom of God. Which is just to say, not that Jesus has a purely negative view of it. He just recognizes, well, what we should all recognize, and that it's incredibly dangerous. 
And that we actually, if you make $32,000 a year in here, which is probably many of us, you are in the top 1% of income earners in the entire world. 99% of billions of people make far less than you, and they are happier than us. Their quality of life is higher than ours. Oh, I know, not you know, as far as like medicine and technology and so on. And, but it's, that's the danger of it. We just assume if we just get a little, if I just had a bit more cushion, then I could finally breathe. And it's like, you, Jesus just understands that we give our life to the, act, the, the accumulation of these things and we end up squandering it and wasting it. And what he wants to do is he wants to course correct us and say, no, you need to recognize it's not that you have, there's more out there to get. It's that what you've been given or what you have is given to you to use. And so rather than viewing what you don't have, look at what you do have and ask the question, how do I use this in a way that is in keeping with my master's intentions? John Mark Comer, uh, John Mark Comer who's uh, my buddy out in Portland, although he doesn't even know I exist. But I listen to his sermons and I like him. Anyway, he, um, he, he has a series of questions that I thought were really great about this. These are ways that I can find out or I can discern if money is controlling me. And he says, first of all, uh, just ask yourself, can I give large amounts of money away or can I only give small amounts away? You know, a couple bucks to someone who asks on the street. That's okay. But large amounts of money, no way. Um, You know that money's controlling you if you only can think about what you have to give as opposed to what you get to give or can give. If the more money you're making, the lower the percentage is of our overall income given. If we're scared, if we live scared that if we have less than we are used to, that we won't be as happy as we are today. If you're envious of people around you who are doing better than you. If no matter how much you get, you just want more. These are all signs that money is actually uh, controlling us. And I know that like some of us right now are, are just ready to, for me to stop talking. And we can just come to the table and go quickly before he says anything else. Um, And yet I think it's important for us to be sober-minded. Jesus had a lot to say about this, and it's because he understood that this is going to be one of the most dominant and controlling realities in our life. And it certainly is, right? Greed, the desire for more, the promises that it holds out to us. And Jesus just sort of gets in front of the hedonic treadmill and says, I know you're working really hard, but let me just tell you, it's all God's anyway. So how are you using what you have? (laughs) Which leads to the fourth point. Uh, generosity in Jesus' mind is the most natural response. Generosity in Jesus' worldview is actually, this is kind of interesting, it's kingdom shrewdness. The shrewd person with a kingdom mindset is the generous person because they understand, as he says, in one of the weirdest sentences Jesus ever spoke, he says, make friends for yourself by means of dishonest wealth so that when it is gone they may welcome you into eternal homes. It's a very strange sentence. But scholars are pretty sure that what he's saying is that he's like, with the, what he calls dishonest wealth, he's just carrying the phrase over from the story. With the, with the money, with the cash money in your life, make friends. In other words, invest in people, invest in things that will outlast because the money in your wallet will fade away. It will go away. It won't last forever. And what will last is the people that you invested in. The things that you did with this money, that is what will go on, and that is what will prepare homes for you uh, in the life to come, he says. And what a person chooses here has massive implications, and we'll look at that next week uh, at a, a coming up teaching in the Gospel of Luke. But Jesus wants us, first of all, to just know that the response is generosity. This is not really, I think, 
um, illogical. You know, if it's true that all that I have is a gift, so all that I, just think about it for a second. Just, just look at your apartment, look at your home, think about your car, think about the clothes you're wearing, think about the labels on those clothes, think about the money in your wallet or the money that's reflected on an app on your phone that tells you. And just think, if everything that I have has been given to me, it's been entrusted to me, and it's not hard to see that there's a remarkable disparity worldwide with what some people are given as far as money, as far as opportunity, and what I've been given. And if all that I have is a remarkable, generous gift from God, well, then how can I respond in any way except with radical and extravagant generosity? Um, but I'm, I'm, like, if I'm being honest, I don't, I'm, I don't like this teaching like I'm not, I'm not a good, I'm not a gener- I'm not a good generous person. Um, I wish I were. I wish I could stand up here and talk about how how uh, what a gift it is. I've always been the person who's like sizing up the pizza slices in the box to make sure I get the biggest piece. I mean, I'm not proud of that. It's actually just what I've always done. And some of you are, you're like, that's never been a thing for me. But like four of you are like, oh, that is my thing too. It's become, it's become a part of my discipleship. It's honestly become my spiritual formation to intentionally give the bigger piece away, the fuller cup to give that away and not take that one and give the less full cup. It's just been part of me. And I don't always do it. Sometimes I'm like, I want the bigger cup. It's just, it's part of God working on me and trying to make me uh, a, a more generous person. I think that Jesus is clearly saying, I want you to be radical. I want you to be extravagant. I want you to be generous. I want you to imagine that everything you have is given to you, and therefore you are, dare I say, obligated to keep the master's heart in how you view it, which means a lot of things. It means, I mean, very specific, it means giving money away, large amounts of money away. And I know that some people are going like, ah, here we are, the pastor making the plug. We're, we are a very blessed church. God has always taken care of, us, care of us. We have a very generous body. This is not me trying to like somehow, you know, get us in the black. Uh, God has always taken care of us. But I will say at the same time, if you're a disciple of Jesus, I absolutely believe we should be giving money to the mission to, that he's doing on the earth in the church, in justice works, in charities, in other ministries, we should be giving money away. And you should give it to your local church. Um, pick a percentage and be faithful with it. I'm very grateful that I grew up in a home where I just was taught to do 10%. So from my first paychecks at Kroger, you know, when I was a bag boy or when I worked at Media Play, if, you, if anyone remembers that place, uh, I've just always given, I've always given a portion of that uh, to a church or to, to a ministry, and I'm grateful for that. And yet I know that I can, I can faithfully give 10% and still not be a generous person. Uh, it's not just about the percentage, but pick a percentage and stick with it. And 10%, 5% even. Don't pray about it unless you want the number to be higher than you'd be comfortable with. If you actually invite God into this, he's going to stretch you beyond what you would like. So you might just want to pick a number uh, or pray about it and, and, and trust God. That could be even better. But it's an opportunity for us to remind ourselves monthly, biweekly, whatever it is, everything I have has been given to me, and I'm giving parts of it away immediately as a way of responding in that worldview, in that light, that this is the kingdom uh, that I, I live in. And Jesus wants us to understand, look, I, I understand there's, lots of, there's, there's, there's a lot at play in this, right? I mean, this, this is a powerful thing. You start talking about this, you talk about sex and relationships, you're talking about like the, the heavy things in our life, the things with all the power in them. And I think that's why Jesus is so clear about it. 
It's why he just puts his finger right in the middle of it, and he says, I want you to use this in a way that is going to be different from the way everyone else uses it. I want you to give it away. I want you to be intentional. I want you to be generous. He asks us to do this, and, and we can sort of white-knuckle our way into this, and I think that, that's a, that that might be necessary for some people, but the Scriptures, are thankfully, are very kind because they remind us that the motivation for this is not white-knuckling. In fact, uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul, is writing to a church in Corinth, and he's writing to them to, to, uh, to encourage them to become generous in their giving. So this is a pretty immature church. They're pretty young in their faith. And he's like, I want, you to be, I want you to be pretty generous in what you give away. And then he writes these words, and we have it on the screen. He's like, for you need to remember the generous act of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty he might make you rich. He says the model for this, the reason that we do this, the thing that moves our heart, the thing that might move us a little bit beyond ourselves is to recognize that the reason that we have the kingdom, the reason we have the spirit, the reason we have access to God is because the one who had the cattle on a thousand hills, the one who had all things in his possession and has been eternally happy at the side of his father, he emptied himself and became nothing, became poor, was treated as a servant and a slave and died a slave's death outside the city walls so that you could have, so that you could have more so that you could be welcomed in, so that you would have a seat at the table, so that you would have fellowship. Paul says this is the thing that begins to crack open the heart so that generosity flows out of us instead of being forced out of us. It's something that just pours out of us the more that we see Jesus pouring out his life for us. Why don't we stand up together, prepare to come to the table. Thank you so much for listening to today's sermon. I'm Matthew Brown, the parish pastor here at Trinity Indicator. At Trinity, our mission is to be a people who are growing into Christ-likeness. And you can learn more about Trinity and get plugged into the life of the church by visiting our website, atltrinity.org. Thank you so much, and God bless you. Have a great week.